Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Dr. Glenn Peoples, who is a Christian philosopher living and working in New Zealand and who runs the Right Reason website on matters theological, philosophical and societal and the podcast Say Hello to My Little Friend, which I think is a quote from a film, uh, Scarface. So I'll ask in a minute why um, that was chosen. Dr. Peoples has a a breadth of academic training with degrees in music, which of course I approve of, uh, divinity, uh, which also approve of, I might add, uh, a master's in theology and a PhD in philosophy. Dr. Peoples, thank you very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Julian, you're more than welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to be speaking with you after all this time, actually. And I, and I say after all this time because I've been listening to your podcast say hello to my little friend for probably a few years, actually. I mean, I first came across it when I thought it was called the Beretta cast, but um, was it actually called the Beretta cast? Um, That was kind of an alias. Uh, My website, my blog, used to be called Beretta just because I I thought it was pretty cool to name it after a gun. (laughs) But um, uh, eventually I thought maybe I should give it a more sensible name and it became Right Reason. So I stopped calling the podcast the Beretta cast. And so then you thought the podcast should have a less than sensible name. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. Oh, well, that, that was always the main title, but, but it, it sort of kept its firearmish overtones with a name like that. <laughs> Well, as I say, I've been dipping into it over a number of years and, uh, you know, as things of interest have come up and I found it, you know, a really good resource, actually, you know, for a particular theological matter or something, you know, going on in, in society even. And you think, oh, I'm sure that Dr. Peoples has something to say about that. So that's a great resource. Oh, thank you. And uh, one of the things that you talked about quite a bit, which we're going to be chatting about today, is the moral argument for the existence of God or the moral argument for theism, which I think is a certainly the way you put it, it's a really persuasive argument. Uh, once you start mm. kind of drilling down into the details, which I hope we'll be able to do in some small measure today, at least I'll have a go anyway, I'm trying to wake up here because it's early in the day for me, but late in the day for you. Um, <laughs> can we first of all find out a bit more about you and your ministry? And perhaps we could actually start with your podcast. Why did you in the first place decide to do a podcast? Yeah, well, I started, all of this started when I was still completing my PhD back in about 2006. I needed an outlet for some of my thinking, so I started the blog. And I had a couple of friends who had blogs and who ran podcasts, and I know that I really enjoyed listening to them. And they urged me to do it. Uh, my good friend, Dee Dee Warren, uh, really encouraged me to do this. And I said, oh, no, no one would listen to that. Who wants to listen to me talking about the mind? <laughs> but uh, it turns out people do quite enjoy it, which is very gratifying. And I've just been doing it ever since. Gosh, 2006, that's 10 years ago. Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind yeah. of terrifying. <laughs> well, certainly people like me like to listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you do uh, lots of speaking, actually, don't you, in all kinds of contexts. Where are the kind of places do you speak? I guess I do a bit. I mean, I do things like this. I, I get interviewed on other people's podcasts, which is very nice. I speak in church. I'm possibly heading into ordination sometime in the not-too-distant future. I speak at the occasional conference around the world, which is a lovely benefit of what I do. It's an mm. awesome thing to go out and meet people from from far away yeah. and to travel and yeah, so I do a little bit of this stuff. It's quite good. I, I like the writing side of things, too. I get pieces published every now and then, which is very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So I introduced you, of course, as a Christian philosopher, and your PhD is in philosophy. And so I think what might be going through some people's minds is, well, how is a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, different from being a theologian? How would you put that? 
Sometimes not at all. I mean, it just depends what you're philosophizing about. Mm. You know, to engage in philosophy just means to approach subject matter in a particular way. And sometimes that subject matter is theology. So, for example, when you're doing philosophy of religion, which is really a lot of what I do, there's a very blurry line between the two. I mean, I, I contributed to a book last year. The subject area was called analytic theology. Now, there is no difference between analytic theology and philosophy of religion as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so all my degrees prior to the PhD were in theology and music, but that's quite different again. But um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on religion in the public square, and, and there was a lot of theology in that. You know, our theology of ethics, for example, and the way that we approach life uh, and hence public life. So there's a very blurry line. It just depends how you're going about it. And you mentioned analytical theology. So, you know, some people might think, oh, well, if it's got the word theology in there, that it can't be as rigorous as analytical philosophy. But that's not true, is it? It's the same sort of family of, of approaches, really, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, to say that it's analytical theology just means that you're taking an analytical approach to the subject matter of theology. And it may be that you do analytical theology and come away thinking that it's all false. I, mean, I don't, obviously, but there's nothing non-rigorous about it. It's just that's what you happen to be studying, namely theological right. yeah. subject matter. Yeah. yeah, so it's not like some sort of sleight of hand that you do philosophy for so long and then you say, I'm just going to appeal to what the Bible says. You know, that's the end of it. That's the end of the argument kind of thing. Oh, well, you might do that if you could supply good reasons for doing yes. so, which yes. is the point. Sure, sure. But you wouldn't sort of trump the argument by saying the Bible says and that's it without having, mm. as you say, very good reasons. Quite so. Um, mm. Yeah, just uh, one thing that came to mind was we were very recently watching The Flight of the Concords, the, uh, the, the ah, comedy yes. duo. I was just wondering how well known they actually are in New Zealand. They are our crown jewels. <laughs> Wonder, <laughs> wonderful. Well, not quite, no, they're not, but they, they, are, they are widely loved here. We, we're fans of them in the South. Excellent. Yeah, they, they are fantastic. Enjoy them very much. And I noticed on their wiki page, by the way, that it says that they're rumoured to have had ideas rejected by New Zealand television because their comedy has been deemed too Wellington. <laughs> well, I, is, is there actually a Wellington style of humour that elsewhere in New Zealand is not appreciated? Well, I don't know. I, I live in Wellington, so I take that as a compliment. I, I have no idea if it's true, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we must move on, of course, to the subject of this, uh, the moral argument for the existence of God, or the moral argument for theism. Now, I think the first thing that needs to be stressed is that this is a rigorous philosophical argument. It's not something vague like, um, you know, only believers in God can be good, so it's best to believe in God or anything like that. It's a matter of serious philosophical uh, inquiry and debate. And um, the person that I've heard talk about this most of all, of course, is the philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig, who is very famous. And he regularly includes this in his debates and presentations. But your version of it, at least the way you presented it in the podcast, is slightly different from his. Uh, could you explain how it's different? and why you formulate it slightly differently. I think maybe the most popular version of the moral argument, namely the one that Bill uses, when you get a PhD, you get to call people by first names, <laughs> um, is something like this. It's if God did not exist, then there would be no moral obligations or there would be no objective moral facts or, or something to that effect. But, he says, there are moral obligations, moral truths, moral facts, call them what you will, and therefore God exists. Now, I find the argument convincing myself, because I believe the premises to be true. I don't think there could be any moral facts without God. And I also believe that there are moral facts, and I think the conclusion follows. Therefore, God exists. But I find it less than helpfully persuasive, because there are ways that people can resist the argument, and the most plausible way I think people can resist the argument is by denying that there are any moral truths. 
And so they can say, well, your argument doesn't get off the ground with me because there are no moral truths at all. And my argument doesn't require a commitment to moral truths, but it also, I have to admit, isn't as watertight in that it doesn't so obviously lead to the conviction that God exists. But I think it gives people a really important choice that they have to make. So my argument goes like this. It's if there are any moral facts, then they are either natural or they're not natural. And that's analytically true. That means it's true by definition. It must be either natural or natural or not natural if, if they exist at all. Um, but, but when you say natural, what do you mean by that? I mean, either moral truths are features of the natural world or they're something else. That has to be true. Either that's what they are or they're not. But I, I say that moral facts, if they existed, are not natural. They're not features of the natural world. And consequently, there must be something non-natural, if, the, if they're real at all. And then I say that if there are non-natural moral facts, then the best way of accounting for those is by appealing to the existence of a non-natural person who brings the moral facts about. Mm. And therefore, if there are any moral facts, then we ought to believe that there is a non-natural person who brings moral facts about. Now, initially on paper, it just kind of looks a bit unwieldy and clumsy. But when you start to unpack each step, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it puts someone in a position of saying, okay, so what am I going to give up here? Am I going to give up my rejection of a supernatural or non-natural person? Am I going to accept the existence of a non-natural person? Or am I going to give up my commitment to moral truth? And here's the reason why I think the moral argument is, is especially potent, or it especially gets people's attention and forces them to listen. Because if people are so inclined, they can close their ears to discussions about physics in the beginning of the universe. That's really complex. If they're so inclined, they can just choose not to investigate historical claims about the resurrection of Jesus. They can do that. But you can't get away from moral facts. And that's why I think this is quite powerful. Because you every day are confronted with them. They are part of what you are. And just about everyone has strong opinions about moral matters. And so this, what, this argument, I think, really grabs you at a place that matters to you. Mm. Yes, and I do see the power of it. Um, I will just come back, if I may, to this business of what you mean by natural, because obviously one can say there is the natural and there is the non-natural, and that covers everything. But nevertheless, I'd still want to ask, what do you mean by the natural? Do you mean something rather like C.S. Lewis said, things going on of their own accord, the phenomena of this world going on of their own accord? More or less. I mean, when I say natural, I mean the kind of qualities that you can predicate of natural objects, like, say, a log or an apple. It has height, it has color, it has weight, it has a whole lot of other properties that you can analyze in terms of chemistry and physics. Um, hmm. But then there are things that are just not natural. Uh, so, for example, laws of logic. And incidentally, I realize that it's controversial as to whether or not these things are natural or not. I think they're not. <laughs> uh, so things like laws of physics, things like numbers, if there are such things as numbers, and that's actually a, a, a subject of disagreement, but things that are not analyzable in terms of laws of physics and chemistry, things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is helpful. So then you are saying that uh, it may be reasonable to suppose that there is a person in that realm of things, of, of numbers, of propositions, or something like that. Yeah, a person who is not part of the universe, part of the physical world that we're familiar with. And that is because you think that these objective moral obligations cannot be grounded in the natural world. That's right, yeah. I mean, when we talk about natural facts, the kind of things that scientific investigation relates to us, when we do it properly, uh, we're investigating the way things are. So we're saying, how many 
quarks are there in the universe? Now, that would probably be an absurd question to ask, but nonetheless, it is a scientific question. Or, you know, what kind of force will this exert? Or, or you know, how much energy could this mass be converted to? These are quantifiable things uh, that tell us about what was, what is, what will be, but they're not, and they cannot be facts about the way things ought to be. They're descriptive. They're not prescriptive. Mm. And that's what makes moral facts so different. They don't tell us what to expect or what we have observed. They tell us what we ought to do regardless of mm. what we observe. Yes, yeah, interesting. So they have a sort of inbuilt pressure. They sort of press upon us how it is that we should behave. Um, so part of this is to say, well, these objective moral obligations, maybe they do exist. They are real. So if, if, if what do we even mean when we're talking about a moral obligation? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'll be the first to admit that defining moral obligation isn't easy. And the reason it's not easy is that we generally take it for granted. We all, we know what it's like to experience a moral obligation because we feel that we ought to do something. But when someone says, but what are you telling me when you tell me that you believe you ought to do this? What are you saying? Mm. I mean, one way of thinking about it, and this may seem quite foreign to a lot of people, I'll paint a picture of the way that I think morality really is and we can see the way that morality works within that context. And then I say, if you take away that context, it's much harder to ask the question, what are moral facts? Because I think my framework is the one that really makes sense of them, enables us to, to explain what they are in a way that's intelligible. So moral facts relate to the concept of proper function. Now, proper function means that there is a way that things were intended to be. Now, I know that not everyone agrees with that account of proper function. But I think that account of proper function has been hammered out by philosopher Alvin Plantinka. He wasn't at all writing about ethics. He was just talking about, I don't know what you would call it, proper function is what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, when, you, when you say intended to be, so this is the notion of a will actually wanting something to be the case, right? I mean, we wouldn't say that, that evolution might produce proper function, could we? Well, evolution doesn't produce proper function. It just produces function. Mm. And that function turns out in retrospect to be good for something or not good for it. Mm. But to say that it was meant to function that way is false because as people like Richard Dawkins remind us, evolution has no mind's eye. Indeed, no mind, as he famously said. Evolution is how things happen, but it's not why they happen. Not in any kind of forward-looking way. Mm. It's not that we adapted in order to do something. It's right. instead that we adapted in such a way that turned out to be good at doing something. So that's not a proper function. That's just a useful function. Mm -hmm. uh, the pro that, pro that, proper function is a theistic idea, then. The idea that God has decided that a, a certain being should function properly in a certain kind of way. Yeah. I mean, if the universe was not intended by anyone, then it's hard to see that there is any way in which we are meant to function within it. We decide how we function. And it may be physically good for us, it may be physically bad for us, it may be physically good for the environment or bad for the environment. But to say that we were intended to function one way or another only makes sense within a theistic worldview. And this is how I go about, well, partly how I go about explaining or introducing the idea of a non-natural person to explain moral facts. Because moral facts by their nature have an intentional or forward-looking aspect to them. It's that it would be proper to do something because you are fulfilling a demand or a command. That's the way that we experience moral obligations. But natural states of affairs don't demand or command anything. Persons do. Mm. 
Um, you also bring up this business about the word ought, and I think we need to get this out of the way very early on in the discussion because it can be taken more than one way, can't it? So far you've been using it in the sense of a moral sense, you ought to do so and so, but it can be confused with another way. Do you want to explain and get that out of the way for us? Yeah, and this causes a lot of confusion. It causes some people to think that they've solved morality without God when they haven't. Right. I'll pick on Sam Harris because he's a particularly famous example in, I guess, in the world of pop philosophy. Mm. You can use the word ought in what we call a rational sense. There is, there is a rational ought, which means that in order to achieve outcome A, you ought to engage in action B because that is a means to an end and that's the most effective way of going about it. But that doesn't mean you're required to do it. It just means it would work. And I think a lot of people get confused about this when it comes to morality because Sam Harris says, for example, he does it with the word good. But good and ought can be confused in roughly the same way because something can be good for a particular outcome or it can just be morally good, something you're required to do. Right, so I could say to somebody, you ought to use the right kind of oil to make your lawnmower work, but that's not a moral ought. That's right, because you're not saying you're morally required to make your lawnmower work. If you were, then, you'd, then there'd be another another story. I mean, uh, if your parents have told you to make your lawnmower work, then maybe you morally ought to put the right oil. Yeah, but that's different. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Interesting that that causes so much confusion. I can imagine it doing so, but uh, does it actually cause confusion in professional philosophical circles as well? No, generally not. No. In fact, I, um, when I studied metaethics with uh, Professor Charles Pigton, one of the things that we emphasized over and over, just to make sure that we were really clear about it, is that there is such a thing as, as non-moral goodness, uh, which is quite different from moral goodness. And, and even if we can account for non-moral goodness, that doesn't mean we've accounted for moral goodness, because they're not the same thing. So, now, people who devote themselves professionally and academically to studying these matters are generally quite careful in distinguishing them. But often, you know, the internet is the internet, and not everyone <laughs> so commits themselves to understanding the issues. Mm. Well, I suppose one way of attacking the kinds of things that you're saying is to say, well, okay, these objective moral obligations that you're talking about, maybe they don't need to be grounded in any kind of God. Um, maybe they just exist in some sort of platonic, ethereal space, I don't know, as necessary truths. They're just true, and they're brute facts of reality. So 2 plus 2 equals 5 is wrong, not only in this reality, this world, but it would be wrong in any world. Yeah. And maybe that's just true of moral realities as well. How, how would you counter that one? Yeah. Uh, well, there are, I mean, there are a few things to say about it. So let me just kind of flesh out the objection a little more. Uh, I mean, the objection is to say that in lieu of God, we can believe a kind of idealism or Platonism. The view that there are these objects out there that are not natural objects, that's something akin to Plato's idea of the form, which are these metaphysical free-floating things that are not physical, but which nonetheless ground things like goodness or perhaps obligation. So Plato, for example, would think that you know, a good tree was a good tree to the extent that it resembled the ideal or the form of a tree. So there was like this blueprint of a tree out there. And, that, that, that's, yeah, not yeah. In, that's not in anybody's mind, and that's not even in God's mind. It's mind-independent. That's right. It's, kind of, it's in the, the world of, of ideas or forms. And the idea is that, uh, well, at least one way of expressing this is that moral truths can be like that. They can just be, and that's all there is to it. Now, I think that moral truths are necessary truths because that just means they're true in every possible world. Okay. But that's because I think they're grounded in God. God exists in every possible world, and God is loving. So God is loving in every possible world. So in every possible world, God would command you to not do things that are unloving. Okay. So that's the sense in which I think they're necessarily true. Mm. But the reason 
I'll say two things. Firstly, a reason that I don't think you can ground morality in objects like that is, again, because of the personal nature of moral facts. They are forward-looking and they are prescriptive. When we experience a moral obligation, it is like experiencing a command. Now, I think that's because it is a command. But nonetheless, this forward-looking, prescriptive nature of moral facts is the kind of thing that makes them sound like they suspiciously come from a person because the only kind of thing that has intentions, the only kind of thing that has a will or a desire about the way we live is not some ethereal, impersonal state of affairs. It is a person. That's the kind of thing that issues commands or has a will or an opinion about our life. And the second thing is, I think this is a, is a remarkable way to try and escape the existence of God because you know, belief in free-floating platonic ideas is at least as difficult to maintain as belief in a personal God, especially in this way, because if you believe in, say, the form of goodness or, or a platonic object of goodness in order to explain moral duties, then you've just created or at least hypothesized this, I'll say, fairly mysterious entity just to explain one thing, namely the existence of moral truths. But according to Occam's razor, that's an, an extraordinary thing to do, just to introduce this entity to explain this one thing. But if you believe in God, then God explains not just moral truths, but pretty much everything. So it's a far more mm. elegant economical theory than just concocting up this object to explain one thing that we observe, namely moral truths. Mm. But is that fair? Do philosophers just dream this up for the explanation of one thing? Or would they go along with Plato and say that, in fact, these ideas apply to everything in reality? There's a perfect train, there's a perfect bus, etc.? Well, these are multiple different ideas you must understand. So, so for trains, you're introducing an entity. For trees, you're introducing an entity. For goodness, you're introducing an entity. Whereas if you explain morality in terms of God, you're not doing that. You're saying we've got this one entity that explains everything, which is far more elegant. Right. Okay. So then those ideas would be the ideas of God. And so they wouldn't actually be multiple explanations. They would be one explanation, which is God, who has ideas. Oh, well, that's kind of an Augustinian Neoplatonism. That's one way to go about explaining, but mm -hmm. one way or the other. You're not introducing lots of different entities. Mm. Uh, I mean, you might not believe in any kind of Platonism at all, in which case you're just not going there in terms of forms. Right. But I find it more satisfying to note that the nature of moral obligation is such that it seems personal. It has opinions. Mm. It makes mm. demands. It calls you to do things. I have to say that I find the idea of a mind-independent idea rather unintelligible anyway. I can't even begin to understand what's really being said there. You know? I mean, you're not alone. There's, there's a good reason why most philosophers mm. aren't Platonists. I mean, it's like asking, what's the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> These are like thoughts out there with no one to think them. Right. I, yeah. I find it nonsensical, but people... people... Think, thinkerless thoughts. <laughs> yeah, right. I've, I've, I, yeah, in my dissertation, I called them just that, thinkerless thoughts. Oh, dear, right. <laughs> So, um, related to this, in a way, I mean, you, you said that these moral obligations have a kind of force upon us, and we, we experience that. Mm. So that indicates to us that there's some sort of personal source of this. But I listened to a debate between William Lane Craig and Shelley Kagan, and he talked in terms such that one might think that this force that we experience is something that's generated within us totally could be completely explained by ourselves rather than requiring an external force, as it were. So he's saying something along the lines of, let's say we've evolved to a certain degree of intelligence. So we can see that certain actions are helpful, other actions are unhelpful, that could be to ourselves or to the people around us. So, so we know that it's objectively true 
that it's best to do certain things and it's best not to do certain things. And we can apply all the words we like to that. We ought to do that. It's right. That's wrong. But he says that that's kind of dressing up in fancy language. But we do know that these actions are objectively beneficial or objectively non-beneficial. So they are objective moral obligations. Right. Has he got a point? Um, well, he has a point, but it's not the one he really should be trying to make. Yes, there are objective truths about morality, and and I need to say this is effectively the same argument that Sam Harris makes. Sam Harris just introduced it to a wider audience. There are objective truths, that is, transcendent truths from a third-person perspective that are not subject to opinion about what is, say, physically good for you, what will make you sick, what will help you live longer, and so on and so forth. But to jump from that to saying that we have therefore discovered objective moral duties is to engage in the very type of confusion that we talked about earlier with the different senses of the word good and the different senses of the word ought. It may be that doing something is good for you in the sense that it helps you live longer, but that doesn't mean you're morally obligated to do it. Who says I'm required to do what is good for you or good for me or good for anyone else? So I think there is that basic kind of confusion going on there. Okay, so I think the only thing to do then, if you wanted to avoid the force of what you've just said, would be perhaps to say, well, these don't exist at all. Real moral obligations in this non-natural sense, they they certainly don't exist at all. And that's the way a number of thinkers have gone. People like Michael Ruse or people like John Mackey, or as I mentioned, my professor, uh, Charles Picton, a lot of people have gone that way. And, you know, what do you do when someone just digs their heels in and says, I don't believe that moral truths exist? And here is where Mm. an interesting argument rears its head. John Mackey introduced this argument, and it's called the argument from queerness. And you mentioned it to me as we were preparing for the show. Um, See, the argument from queerness is an argument against the existence of moral truths. And, well, it can be presented in a number of ways, but his best argument, I think, is that if you suppose a natural world, as he does, then moral facts are queer in the sense that they are incompatible with it. Now, I fully agree that they are incompatible with it. They're facts about the way that things are ultimately meant to be and not just facts about the way they are. So they're not natural facts. And so they're queer. Mm -hmm. They don't fit into this naturalistic view of the world. So we shouldn't believe in them. And here is where I... (laughs) It sounds immediately circular to me, yes. I'm simplifying terribly, you must understand. Mm. But the idea is that moral claims are just so different from anything else that we know that we can't take them seriously as fact claims. That's generally the kind of thing that he's getting at. But if you're asking me what I find more queer... The proposition that there is no God on the one hand, or the proposition that murdering my children and raping my wife is not morally wrong on the other. I know which one I find more queer on an intuitive level. Uh, So I just don't see how the queerness argument, I mean, if you're just asking about what seems weird to you, well, Mm -hmm. look, I have to say, you know, I find moral nihilism pretty weird. Mm. Would you say that's a kind of an appeal to intuition, but a very deep-seated intuition within us? That that is what is experiencing that sense of queerness, which makes us reject the idea that there are no objective moral obligations. But I mean, if we don't go with that, I mean, you may correct me in a moment, but this is how I'm explaining it. If we don't go with that deep sense of intuition about that, then we would have to jettison our deep sense of intuition about all sorts of fundamental ways in which we apprehend reality. Yeah, I mean... uh In the case of the queerness objection, and also in the case of the person who believes that there are moral truths and wants others to accept the moral argument, each of them is essentially appealing to intuition. Well, actually, maybe a little bit more than just gut intuition. I mean, I am persuaded 
that we have a faculty of moral perception and that it's generally reliable. We all tend to agree, morally speaking, more than we disagree. So I think that we're actually seeing some truth when we observe moral facts. I don't really know that the queerness objection can say the same thing, because the queerness objection just is kind of saying, well, morality is incompatible with our worldview. Well, maybe it is, but maybe your worldview is false. You're not, you're not, perceiving, well, yeah, yeah. You're not, you're not perceiving that your worldview is true. Yes, it does um, seem to me of what you said about Mackie there, that he's essentially saying, well, I'm going to assume what needs to be proven, that naturalism, philosophical materialism, is in fact true, even before the argument can get off the ground. <laughs> well, that's the metaphysical argument from Queerness, that he doesn't see any space for moral truths. My answer is, well, you would if you believed in God. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. There, there are other types of Queerness argument too, right, like... Right. Uh, Moral facts are just different from natural facts because they motivate us or they command us in a particular way. Other facts don't do that, so moral facts are somehow queer. And I'm sitting here saying, yeah, that's because they come from a personal source. If you believed that, you wouldn't find them so queer. Mm. So you know, I think belief in God just mm. makes morality less queer. Mm. That's a um, queer kind of argument in itself because I mean, there are all sorts of things that are discovered, let's say, in theoretical physics, which seem extremely queer, but nobody says, oh, well, that's queer, so we won't even go with that hypothesis. <laughs> Yeah, and by queer, he kind of means incompatible, but he wants to make it sound more impressive than that. Right. But again, as I say, my, my, my response to that ultimately is just to say, okay, so either philosophical naturalism is false, or it's not wrong to murder my family. Well, I'll go with philosophical naturalism being false, thank you very much, because that seems much more obvious. Right. Well, all of that which you've just said there doesn't really come over when somebody like Michael Roos, I mean, you brought this up in one of your programs, and uh, I thought I would quote it because it's a very quotable quote, and it brings up this general attitude towards things. But when you listen to what he says, the queerness that you're talking about, which makes you think, well, I must believe in objective moral obligations because otherwise it's the unthinkable. But that doesn't come over in what he says. Let me just quote what he says, quote, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbour as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Now, on the face of it, that sounds, yeah, okay, sounds kind of reasonable, but the implications of that are under the surface and could be really quite horrendous. <laughs> yeah, but even as he says that, he uses phrases like, we have an awareness of, well, no, we don't have an awareness of morality if he's right. It's not something that we're aware of. They're just deluded beliefs that we hold. To be aware of something is to know that something is true when it is, like I have an awareness of a tree over there. We just hold these beliefs because holding these, holding to these lies just turned out to be useful is what he's really saying. Mm. So we should say humans have an awareness of something we call morality. Yeah, humans have these beliefs because they turned out to be useful for us. Mm. And yet, curiously, at other times, he speaks as if moral facts are real, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He acts like someone who, I mean, we all do. Even people who are self-described nihilists, they act like people who believe that there are moral truths. I can't think what that quote is, but doesn't he say something like the person who says that it's okay to rape little children or something is just as wrong as the person who says that two and two equals five or something like that? Yes, and I think he overshoots the mark there. He says that, you know, the per yeah, you're right, the person who thinks that it's okay to rape is just as wrong as the person who thinks that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Well, I don't think that's quite true. I mean, 2 plus 2 equals 5 is a mathematical truth. Moral truths aren't 
true by definition in that sense. Uh-huh. But yeah, his point is well taken that um, hmm. yeah, people who think that these horrible actions are morally acceptable are factually wrong. He really thinks that there is something objectively wrong about that. And I, I just I don't know what that would be. He doesn't really unpack it, mm-hmm. but I think he's undercut himself already by saying that these moral beliefs are really just useful fictions. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is a, another way of getting away from these objective moral obligations, which is just to say that, well, I don't know to what extent this is fashionable anymore, but used to be to say, well, they're meaningless. So this is the idea of, is it called verificationism? Oh. To say, well, they don't actually refer to anything particularly or, or at all. It's just gobbledygook. Yeah, you're, and you're right. It's not really that popular anymore. Uh, and not just because of trends, uh, because there was a pretty good response to this way of thinking. In the early to mid 20th century, there was this movement within philosophy called logical positivism and they had a verificationist approach now verificationism was the view that if a proposition is not true by definition so it's not analytically true like maths or something and if it's not the kind of thing that you can scientifically verify empirically test then it's not even untrue it doesn't carry any meaning it's just it's not a proposition it's nonsense it's an empty sound and so the people who said this people like aj Eyre, for example said that beliefs about god or beliefs about morality were all of that nature because you know it wasn't true by definition that god exists or that murder is immoral and you couldn't empirically test whether these things were true and therefore they were just nonsense you, you couldn't even have an intelligent discussion about them mm. it was like burping or, or just making a noise <laughs> Until, you know, people decided to ask the question, okay, so take this verificationist principle. Is the verificationist principle (laughs) true by definition? (laughs) Well, no, it's not. (laughs) Can you empirically test this? Well, you can't. So I guess it's just meaningless. (laughs) And once once the secret was out, although it seems kind of obvious on reflection, let's just say that verificationism isn't quite as as mainstream as it once might have been. It's interesting you should say, with reflections, kind of with hindsight, it seems obvious, because I do have a copy of Language, Truth and Logic by A.J. Eyre. And uh, I did, you know, had a look at it, and it was like every page there was this sense of, well, that kind of refutes itself, doesn't it? But that was only because I was aware of what had happened in the scene, you know. Um, yeah, we, we can see it through the review mirror, yes, as it were. That's right, yeah. How long did it take for that to dawn upon people? Oh, well, don't ask me when, when someone first said, um, excuse me, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I get the impression that there's something of this way of looking at things that's still there in the popular world of the new atheists, um, because some people seem to oh, sometimes it, talk it, it, in these terms. And I think you're sort of dealing with something that's 70 years out of date. And that's so often, the, I, mean, I have to vent just a little about this, that is so often the case that hive of scum and villainy, the internet, when it comes to discussions about religion, people will think they sound very, very clever, but they're actually, say, appealing to the scholarship that was around, say, 150 years ago in biblical scholarship, or the stuff of the early 20th century in in analytic philosophy. And you think, what are you doing? (laughs) Don't make me sit here and give you an education on everything that's happened in the last century. Now, look, I'm not at all implying that everyone who is a skeptic or who is an atheist and who has an extra grind against religion is like that. Of course they're not. But it is surprisingly common on the internet for people who have just discovered this stuff and they think it's cutting edge and it's almost funny. Mm -hmm. Well, all you need on the internet is a force of personality and that's it. (laughs) 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 And a few rude words helps as well. Um, (laughs) I was just thinking there that 
in some ways, this business about uh, logical positivism is quite instructive, isn't it? In the sense that it tells us how easy it is for extremely intelligent people to be captured by a fashion. Oh, <laughs> um, I was... should warn us that that kind of thing, presumably, is not just going to happen once. It's going to happen time and time again in the history of ideas. It's, at any given point in history, it is happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I guess in your presentations, you suggest at least that out of that scene, as a kind of reaction to it, came a different approach, which you label expressivism. So this isn't actually saying that these objective moral obligations are talk about it is meaningless, but that it doesn't mean quite what we think it means, but rather when we say such and such is wrong, we're talking not gobbledygook, but we're talking about how we feel about things. Yeah, and, okay, let me unpack that. So expressivism was, I guess, very influenced by logical positivism because it is compatible with it uh, because expressivism buys into this whole idea that when you utter a moral proposition, you think you're uttering an intelligible proposition, but you're not. Mm. But what you're doing is still important. So that's what they were kind of salvaging there. Uh, A really influential expressivist would have been someone like R.M. Hare, who thought that when you were making a moral claim, what you were doing was expressing your will, like expressing a command, but not saying you're required to do this. Instead, you're saying, do this, which is not something that can be true or false. You analyze that. It's not even a sentence. Do this. It's just an utterance. It's just an imperative. And expressivism is anything like that, where you're not making a claim. You're not even making a claim about your feelings. You're not saying, I feel X. You're just saying X or yuck or boo or yay or something like that. You're revealing your feelings through that statement. Yes, people can tell what you feel based on what you say. But the point is, it's not a proposition. Hmm. You're just expressing either your will or emotions or something else. But you're not uttering a statement. So if you say something like, it's wrong to steal, then could you actually be meaning something like, I don't like stealing? Well, people could probably tell that you don't like stealing. But when you say it's wrong to steal, it's like saying, Oh, you steal right. or oh, stealing so you're really you're really just venting or oh, don't steal you're not even offering a statement like i personally do not approve of stealing although people can obviously tell that that's the case uh, because so the utterance is functioning as a symbol for your feeling that's right that's right and the reason they did this is that they really were so influenced by the verificationist idea that it's not an intelligible proposition. Mm. Uh, But really, the reason for thinking that uh, has been pretty well undercut. Expressivism was an attractive option to a lot of people because of this verificationist principle that led people to say, well, we can't consider moral propositions to be real propositions after all. But that reason's simply bunk. Namely, the verificationist principle has been shown to be self-defeating. So the whole motivation to go down this expressivist path is really not one that we should buy into in the first place. I mean, and more to the point, I think just, just in terms of dealing with people on a day-to-day basis, it really does appear that people are uttering propositions when they say that something is wrong. So um, if you endorse expressivism, you're basically telling people what they mean. <laughs> when it comes down to it, you're saying, no, you're not really uttering a proposition. You think you are, and it sounds like you are, and your conversation works as though you were, but that's really not what you're doing. Well, no, they really are. It's just that they're not expressivists. <laughs> I think the most, I don't want to say honest, because it's not like these people were dishonest, but I think the best way of, of grappling with this stuff is just say that you don't think it's true if, that's, if you don't buy into morality. Just say, look, it's false. You're saying something, you think it's right, you're wrong. Mm. So your view then, could you possibly sum up your view, having 
put to sleep a lot of these objections that have been floating around. How would you actually formulate your view, taking into account some of these arguments we've been going through? It's an interesting question, not because I can't answer it, but because mm. the point of the moral argument isn't to give an account of morality. It's just to say that a given type of worldview, namely naturalism, can't give an account of morality. Because the truth is, I think that the Christian has yeah. options when it comes to what they think of morality. It's just that they're all theistic options. So you might believe in, in a kind of natural law view of morality, which I think is represented in the type of proper function argument, the idea that there is really a telos or proper end of the human person. Uh, but I only think that's a defensible view because God exists and proper function therefore makes sense. Right. If God didn't exist, that wouldn't make sense. I also think that a divine command theory of morality is very appealing. It's appealing because when we experience morality, it actually does resemble commands. I find it appealing because I like underdog views as well. And a lot of people really don't like divine command ethics, and there have been a whole slew of objections to it, objections which I think are really terrible. And that always makes me think that maybe where there's smoke, there's a fire. So can you tell us then what a divine command theory might be? Sure. It comes in a variety of flavors. Basically, a divine command theory is any theory where there is a very close relationship between moral obligation and God's will or God's commands. And the two dominant forms are that moral obligations are divine commands. That's what they are. God's commands constitute our obligation. Or the other one is that God's commands cause us to be obligated in given ways. Obviously, they're very similar. Most people don't in, you know, in everyday conversation, don't distinguish between them very carefully. But I think it makes a lot of sense because if we believe that God is the source of moral value and that moral value reflects God's character, then I think that diffuses most of the objections to a divine command theory of ethics. Mm. For example, some people say, well, that just makes ethics a tautology. Is right. something good because God wills it? Or does God will it because it's good? You know, versions of the euthyphor objection. Uh, does morality just become an empty tautology where we say that, you know, good just is the same thing as God? Well, in terms of moral obligation, no, goodness is not the same thing as God. God issues commands because God's character is the paradigm of goodness. But goodness isn't the same thing as moral obligation. Right? God is good. God is perfect. God is loving and kind and so on and so forth. And God created us and wants what's best for us and knows everything. So he knows all the outcomes of what it would be like, for example, to live one way rather than another. So God's commands reflect his goodness and his love for us and his knowledge of what happens when we live in this way rather than that way. So, so, it, so it, when you, it, you talk it, about God's goodness there, you're not referring to goodness as some sort of a platonic idea that exists that God conforms to. Well, no, but, it's, more, it's mm. that God, rather than an impersonal form, is the good. And I think that makes vastly more sense because goodness actually has opinions. Goodness has a personal nature to it. And you can imagine why the good would want us to do some things and not others. I can't imagine why an impersonal form would want anything at all. So I think this is a role far more plausibly played by a person than by a form or just goodness, whatever that is. But, but um, just to repeat slightly for the sake of clarity, uh, to go back on the other side of that uh, euthyphro dilemma type thing to say, well, you know, if God decides what's good, then presumably he could decide that something that's what we would call evil is good. <laughs> could he not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is commonly referred to as the problem of horrendous or arbitrary commands. Couldn't God then just command anything at all? Mm. Uh, and the answer is no, because there is a distinction here between goodness and rightness. Rightness is about 
moral obligations. Goodness is what God is. God is the good. And God commands in accordance with his own character, in accordance with goodness. So it's not as though God would command or even could command contrary to goodness. So God wouldn't command something that was absolutely incompatible with a being who is perfect love, for example, because that's what God is. Mm. That makes sense because God's goodness is not the same as moral obligation. God isn't obligated to do anything. God isn't obligated to be loving. No one commands God to be loving. That's what God is. And so, mm-hmm. so I think this makes sense. Right. So God has a particular nature, and we happen to label that good, loving, etc. But it, it is essentially how he is. That's right. And I, I don't know the extent to which people might use this in evangelism. I'm probably the world's, world's most terrible evangelist. But it's a way of in, it's a way of introducing. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> yeah, it's a way of introducing people to God. Mm. It's saying, look, when you experience goodness, when you recognize goodness, you're recognizing what your creator is like. You're seeing traces of God in creation. Mm. And I think, I actually do think that this is, let me put it this way, in the conversations I've had, conversations of goodwill, where I wasn't just in an argument with people who aren't believers, this has resonated quite well. Mm. The idea that when you when you experience goodness and when you experience also obligation, you're actually encountering God and you're seeing part of what God is like. Mm. Mm. As we've touched on this Euthyphro style of argument here, I'd like to bring up a couple of other things that popularly appear as objections, just general sorts of things, really. Um, And one is that, you know, if it is true that God grounds morality, then how is it that some atheists do, in fact, seem to be morally better than some Christians? Doesn't this uh, sort of undercut the whole business of arguing the connection between God and morality? It doesn't, but it's a really common misunderstanding. In fact, just about every time I've done a presentation on the moral argument, someone has put up their hand and said, look, I'm not a believer. Are you saying that I'm not moral? And my answer is, you may well be much more moral than I am. You know, I have no opinion on that. I don't know you. You may be. Just to delve into a little bit of terminology, this confuses something called epistemology with metaphysics or epistemology with ontology. Let me unpack that just a bit. You see, epistemology is about how we know stuff. Ontology or metaphysics is about what exists, what is real. Now, when we make the moral argument, what we're making is a metaphysical or ontological argument. We're saying that in order for there to be moral truths, there must be something like God. We're not saying that in order to know moral truths, you must believe that there is a God. That's, that's epistemology. That's very different. It's like saying without God, the universe wouldn't exist. Well, are you saying that I don't believe in the universe because I don't believe in God? No, 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 we're not saying that. We're saying that this universe that you and I both observe is explained by God. And so it is with morality. We're saying these moral truths that we all observe and live by, whether we're believers or not, are explained by God. We all observe them. We're just saying, look, because you can see them just as we can, you should believe in our explanation, and here's why. Hmm. Well, another one's related, really, to what we just said there. So it goes along the lines of, well, okay, so a believer may obey moral obligations, uh, but when they do so, they expect to be rewarded. But the unbeliever doesn't expect to be rewarded, so they're morally superior, aren't they? Why why do we think, therefore, that belief in God is anything above non-belief? Well, I mean, whether or not you're rewarded isn't what makes moral truths what they are. Right. If God is good and commands in accordance with his goodness and love and so on, then that would be true, even if there was no such thing as heaven and hell. I'm not even going to go into what I believe about heaven and hell. 
Um, Just listen to your podcast for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Conv- I mean, it's an interesting sort of side argument uh, because I think that theism does best account for moral truths. And what we're saying is, well, okay, so let's query our motivations for for obeying moral truths. I want to say, well, what moral truths? These moral truths. Oh, you believe in them, do you? Yes, I do. Well, yeah. So it's an interesting argument, yeah. and it may well cause us to examine the way that we approach doing right and wrong. Are we just doing them to be rewarded? It may well be that the unbeliever has a point, and we need to think about you know why we engage in moral behavior. But I don't think it does anything at all to dissuade me from thinking that naturalism can't account for moral truths, and theism can. Well, lastly, I wanted to ask you something really, uh, you have touched on it before, but I, I think it's important to say a little bit more about it. And really, I think the motivation for stressing this comes more from William Lane Craig's formulation of the argument, which I'll just repeat here so I can bring out what I'm saying. So he says, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. Now, when you look at an argument in that kind of form, you can then ask the question, well, okay, maybe God exists. Maybe, maybe that's, that's valid. I accept mm. that objective moral values exist, okay. But what kind of God does that lead to? Could it not be some sort of metaphysical computer that's just sort of churning out commands blindly? And what kind of God does that lead to? Yeah, yeah. And um, I'll, I'll just bring this up because it is relevant as well. Um, Professor Stephen Law has constructed the evil God argument where yeah, he thinks that all the traditional proofs of God's existence don't favor a good God over an evil God. So you might believe that God exists, but an evil God is just as probable. And if you think that's nonsense, then you should give up your belief that these arguments show that God exists at all. Because if, if it's ridiculous to believe in an evil God, it should be ridiculous to believe in your God. And I think the moral argument is a good rejoinder to this. And this is where I come around to answering the question. Because the moral argument is grounded in moral experience. It's grounded in the moral obligations, the moral intuitions that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. And they can show us what God is like. So we ask the question, well, what kind of things do we actually experience as moral or immoral? And we find pretty quickly that the types of things that seem moral to us are things like expressions of love, kindness, helping people, doing good, upholding justice. And the kinds of things this, that this is to most people. So does this come back to the idea of proper function? If you're functioning as you should as a normal person, this is the kind of thing most normal people think of. Obviously, you know, the psychopath might think something different. That's right. If someone has a brain that doesn't work properly and is seriously damaged, they might hold to all kinds of views. But we would have recognized that that's not normal or healthy. Hmm. But the point is, if the moral argument points us to our creator, then it also, sorry, our moral experience also shows us something of what our creator is like. It's not a computer. It's not certainly not an evil God. It's a God who loves people. Mm. And so, now, I'll, I'll be the first to admit the moral argument doesn't show you that Christianity is true. But it certainly rules out plenty of religious belief systems where God is not a personal loving deity. So I think it certainly does tell us something about what kind of God this is. Right. Oh, this is the case with all these kinds of arguments for God. They only take you so far. In order to get the Christian God, of course, you need a whole package of arguments, don't you? That's right. I mean, so I think, I think, for example, the uh, various forms of the cosmological argument are good. I think, I think the moral argument is good. I think the historical argument about Jesus is good. So what we end up with is this cumulative package of, of okay, so there is a, a God who created the universe, who is the locus of moral value and who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Hang on a minute, Christianity is true. (laughs) You you bring all these things together. Sure. Hmm. 
Um, just going back just a second, then, couldn't you say, well, okay, you might say, well, God exists, but couldn't you say gods exist? Why should it just be one god? On the basis of the moral argument, you couldn't rule out, uh, at least I don't think, I haven't, I've, never, I've never asked the question of whether or not you could rule out polytheism. You could have like a sort of a council of gods or something. But the point, the point of the moral argument, as I construe it, is that naturalism is false. Right. If there is a supernatural person. You could say, well, maybe there are two or three. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's have that discussion. Yes. Um, yeah, there may be other philosophical reasons for not accepting that. Yes, okay, so we'll come to other arguments and things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, We've talked around, I think, most of the points that you brought up in your presentations, which, of course, is what I'm centering my questions upon. Is, is there any other area that uh, you feel that we've missed out of this discussion that would be important to mention at all? Well, I'll think of something when we're, when we're done. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no doubt about that. But I think perhaps as I'm more and more thinking about the possibility of, of pastoral ministry, I'm thinking less and less about apologetics as a way of arguing and more and more about uh, this as a way of, of relating to people and drawing them in. I sound very touchy-feely, don't I? But it's not that, not that I'm giving up on the arguments, but it's that I'm, I'm mm. seeing other aspects, other uses of them. I, I mm. just think that arguments like this need to be brought into scenarios that are not sterile. I mean, look, it's not that I don't like hearing yes, yes. debates about the existence of God where people mm. use this argument. Yeah, I love a good argument. But I think that these things are much more personal. I mean, if the moral argument is as good as I think it is, and it's very personal in nature, it touches the way that we live and think on a daily basis. And so when people cry out against injustice and they, and they speak up for, say, equality of human beings, as is so often the case with human rights abuses, that is an opportunity for a pastoral conversation to take place. And the moral argument is right at the heart of that. You can say things like, well, mm. you talk about human equality. I want to really talk about that with you because I agree that human beings are equal. But then I have a story to tell about why that's true because we're created by, mm. by a God who loves us and who issues us commands about the way that we live with each other and has his expectations. Yeah, and we live in this kind of world, whereas I don't yeah. understand what you're saying given the world you believe we live in. So, you know, I guess that's a big thing for me is taking an argument that is great as an argument, but making it not just an argument, making it something that's about our Mm -hmm. life. So this is one of the reasons why you call your podcast not just about theological and philosophical matters, but also about societal or social matters as well, isn't it? That's right, because if theology Mm. does nothing but tell us about theology, then what's the point? Yeah, Yeah, well, I actually, I I fully agree with you. I often think this about apologetics. You know, you go to an apologetics website or something, and and it's all about the nitty-gritty of the argument. And I feel so much of apologetics is like that these days. And I, you know, I'm a bit of a champion for the idea of applied apologetics that it needs to be in a context more and more. Because I think often it's Christians talking to each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I retract slightly. It's not that there's no point. No, no, but, no, no. But there's su- that's such a diminished vision of apologetics if that's what it boils down to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm very grateful that you've come on the show and uh, very happy that uh, you've explained to us this really, it's not an easy thing to get your head around. It has to, has to be said because there are so many concepts and terminology there that people will not be familiar with. So thank you ever so much for sort of explaining around this whole subject um now well, I, I, you're more than welcome well thank you you're more than welcome thank you. And of course, we've scratched the surface, really, is all we've done. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Now, that's what I wanted to ask you, um, sort of to close with, is I'm quite sure there will be people who will be thinking, well, look, I, I'd like to find out a little bit more about this. Um, so what is the best way to go about that? Which websites, which resources would you recommend? 
Uh, well, of course, this is my website, which I'm rather fond of. <laughs> so that's, uh, <laughs> yes, that's, yes. Uh, so that's uh, rightreason.org. Uh, I mentioned actually R.M. Hare, a famous philosopher who was an expressivist. Well, his son is a Christian, John Hare, oh. and he's a really good philosopher when it comes to God and morality. So he's written a number of books like God and Morality, uh, Philosophical History. But there is so much good work being done in this area. John Rist is another one, Real Ethics. Uh, you can't go past a huge work like Robert Adams, uh, Finite and Infinite Goods. Some of this is really deep material, though. Oh. I mean, I, I've been saying for some time that I want to write a book about the moral argument. It's just that I, you know, I have a day job and I, I can't just sit around and write books. But there are some, there is some good stuff out there. Uh, there is a new book which I have not read by Jerry Walls and David Baggett. I think it's called God and Cosmos, which explores again the whole question of God and moral value. So there is a lot of good work rolling off the press. But mm. you know, my podcast is a good place to start. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yes, I do recommend that. Yeah, yeah. So those books that you've mentioned, you say they're deep. Does that mean they're rather impenetrable for people who are not familiar with those ways of thinking? They are, for the most uh-huh. part. Uh, people like right. Baggett and Walls tend to be reasonably accessible. But yeah, I mean, it, it is fairly deep subject matter. I mean, you mentioned William Lane Craig uh, earlier. His, his book, uh, Reasonable Faith, mm. or his book, mm. On Guard, touches on these things, although at a, at a reasonably popular level, uh, although he has, he has a, a book that he co-wrote with Richard Taylor uh, called Is the Basis of Morality Natural or Supernatural? No, actually, no, that wasn't a book. That was a debate. So actually, l- listening to these debates between professional philosophers can be illuminating because they tend to be trying to communicate with, with a popular audience. So they're not writing a book with 100 million footnotes. No, no, no. They cover quite a breadth of the territory, don't they? It's, mm. it's very good listening to those sorts of things, indeed. Well, as I say, thank you very much for coming on. I have enjoyed it. It's not always easy, is it, to express quite what you mean when you're talking about these very abstruse things, but uh, I have very much enjoyed it, and I do, I do maintain that this is a very powerful way of going about arguing for the, at least the probability that uh, God exists and that naturalism is uh, just not really up to snuff, to be honest. Um, so thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay. You take care, Julian. And you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Bye.